The time is now. everybody volume three episode 41 this is employment law now and i am mike schmidt i am so excited not only for today's brand spanking new podcast episode uh but for the next couple of months you see we've got a whole bunch of guests who i'm really looking forward to sharing with you um and i think who are going to really bring some value to you and your companies as to what's going on in the world of employment law and employer employee relations these days Upcoming in the next couple of months, just to give you a little bit of a tease, I will have somebody actually from the EEOC talking about the state of affairs at the EEOC, what's going on, what kinds of things do they think should be keeping HR and in-house counsel up at night. I'll also be speaking with a member of the New York Department of Labor's Labor Standards Council team to talk specifically about wage and hour issues, not just on the federal level, but uh, also certainly on the New York state level as well. I'm also going to be having a guest uh, in the next couple of weeks uh, who is uh, from the Retail Industry Leaders Association, R-I-L-A, to talk specifically about what's going on in the retail industry and uh, what kinds of things we should be looking for um, as we move forward in 2019. So a lot of great things coming up on this podcast. I really appreciate you listening. Uh, and I also appreciate all the great feedback that I get, not only um, telling me what people like what people uh, would prefer to hear more about on the podcast, but specific ideas for guests and for topics uh, to be covered on this podcast. So I welcome everybody's comments. I welcome everybody's questions. If you have some thoughts uh, or some feedback, please feel free to either post it uh, on our website, which is www.employmentlawnow.com, or to shoot me an email at Cozen O'Connor, which is mschmidt at cozen.com. Again, just uh, appreciate you listening, really. So as excited as I am for these upcoming guests in the next couple of months, today uh, I have some interesting things that I really wanted to share with you that I think will leave you in some respects scratching your head, and these are things that I think will make you go, hmm. I tried to chill, she made the move, now I know my girlfriend wouldn't approve. I didn't realize my girl was setting me up, yo, my girlfriend didn't trust me, no. Yo, but she lost control, I wouldn't take the bait. I said, chill, baby, baby, chill, baby, baby, wait. My girl bust in the corners, creating the boom. She said, girlfriend, things that make you go, hmm, not just in music, but certainly in employment law. So let's get started with a couple of those things. Uh, First, I want to talk about the expansion of leave and particularly the expansion of paid leave. We are seeing this as a trend. I have talked about it on several episodes and we continue to see it. 
Um, President Trump, certainly in his State of the Union, talked about uh, paid family leave for all, certainly on the federal level, uh, and I think we're going to be seeing and hearing a lot more about that. Um, but states like New Jersey are expanding their unpaid and their paid leave laws significantly to protect employees. And so New Jersey, speaking of that state, they just uh, enacted some new legislation which has some significant new provisions for paid and unpaid leave in that state. Uh, and if you have not only an operation uh, an office in New Jersey, but if you have uh, offices elsewhere but uh, employ an employee or two or more uh, who are in New Jersey, this is something that you might want to um, take notice of. So New Jersey is increasing the amounts of weekly benefits, weekly paid benefits that employees on leave are entitled to get. New Jersey is expanding the length of time that paid benefits can be given to employees on leave, reducing the threshold of the number of employees that need to be employed by the company in order to be covered by the paid leave law, as well as including additional family members within coverage and adding some new eligibility reasons for being able to take leave in the first place. So again, this notion of we have leave statutes paid and unleave and you know we're just gonna go with the status quo well no not so fast continue to watch because the states and the jurisdictions that you're operating in are continuing every day to reevaluate their leave schemes and they are like New Jersey just did coming up with new amendments new enactments when it comes to paid leave entitlement Uh, next, it's not particularly news that a company's liability for harassment is generally going to be different depending on whether the harasser is the victim's supervisor or merely a co-worker. So saying that again, uh, certainly it has been the rule for a long time now that companies will have uh, more of a strict liability uh, if the alleged harasser is somebody who was the supervisor of the employee who is complaining, of the plaintiff, uh, and that there are different standards uh, if it is a co-worker, for example, who is the alleged harasser. But a new case suggests that there now may also be a difference in what actually constitutes the underlying hostility depending on whether it is a supervisor or a co-worker who is uttering the offensive words. For those keeping score at home, the case name is Gates versus Board of Ed of Chicago. It is a case out of the Seventh Circuit Court of Appeals. In this case, uh, Gates was a building engineer with the Chicago Board of Ed, began reporting to this particular supervisor in 2012 who supervised many schools for the Board of Ed in addition to um, Gates's school. So Gates sued, brought a lawsuit, claiming that the supervisor made all kinds of racially offensive remarks, used the N-word, for example, and, and other uh, real uh, offensive uh, and, according to Gates, unlawful uh, comments. The first court, the district court, that got a chance to evaluate this case um, really held Gates to a very high standard, what has been referred to as a hellish standard. What does that mean? Well, the district court said that in order to show that there is a racially hostile work environment, a plaintiff must show that the workplace is, quote, hellish, end quote, that the conduct must be particularly severe or pervasive. Uh, 
Now that's not a new aspect um, of the standard that needs to be shown for hostile environment, but this judge sort of uh, raised the bar a little bit and that the conduct not only has to be severe or pervasive, but particularly severe or pervasive to really become hellish. Well, on appeal, the Court of Appeal says, well, not so fast. Not so fast, you're holding the employee to a much higher standard than is deserved. There is a critical distinction, according to the Court of Appeals, as to whether the racially offensive language is uttered by a supervisor or a co-worker. In other words, the court is suggesting that conduct or statements may become more offensive and perhaps more unlawful if it's done, if it's uttered by a supervisor. So it's not just that the standard of liability for holding an employer or holding a company liable is going to differ depending on whether the activity is engaged in by a supervisor or a coworker, but now the very nature of the underlying statements may be defined as either hostile and unlawful or not so hostile and not so unlawful depending on who says the exact same statement. So the same statements, according to this case, might be severe or pervasive enough if it's uttered by a supervisor, but maybe not so much, maybe not rising to the level of unlawful harassment if the same words are uttered by a coworker. Some case interesting to watch and take note of, and we'll see if other jurisdictions jump on board with this concept. So what do you think about a four-day work week? Well, we have heard over the years that various companies and various industries, instead of having a five-day, eight-hour work week, Monday to Friday, they've toyed with the concept of having four 10-hour workdays. Sometimes they've done it just for the summer. Sometimes they've done it year-round. But even when they're doing four days of 10-hour workdays, you're still keeping to the same 40-hour week, right? I mean, do the math. It's either five eight-hour days or four 10-hour days. But now we go across the pond for a very interesting study that I just saw, um, which is looking at a four-day workweek trial program by a New Zealand company called Perpetual Guardian Financial Services. And what's interesting here is they weren't just looking at whether we move from five eight-hour days to four 10-hour days, but whether we move to four eight-hour days, reducing the number of days but keeping the same number of hours per day. The study seems to have been prompted by this recognition that the realities of the world in 2019 have changed the way we look at work and the working relationship between a company and the workers. There is this gig economy. There is all of this remote access and electronic communication, including increased video conferencing capabilities that don't require people to work the same nine to five days or work just within the four walls of your office. So. This study involved a six-week trial involving about 250 uh, employees in 16 different offices. They were still paid for five workdays, but they were only required to punch in four days with the same eight-hour shifts, therefore 32-hour work weeks. They were still allowed to come in on the fifth day of the week, but they didn't have to. They weren't required to. There were some remarkable but not really all that surprising results out of this study. Here are just a couple of numbers for you. They found that 20% of employees reported being more productive overall. 24% saw an improvement in their work-life balance. 
7% saw a decrease in stress levels, and there was a 20% increase in team engagement. What I really found interesting is one of the conclusions uh, being that employees who were in the office less or fewer hours also managed to increase their productivity while they were in the office because recognizing that they were going to be there for less time, they cut down on unnecessary meetings or unnecessary banter or ineffective, irrelevant banter at these meetings. So they became productive not only when they were out of the office, but while they were actually in the office. So there were all kinds of other stats and results, and I'm happy to send you the whole report if you want to uh, shoot me an email. Um, but there is a takeaway here that there are in 2019 a whole host of ways that people are going at this concept of how do we improve productivity in the workplace. And I think we continue to see it as really a two-pronged effort. We're starting to see more and more government regulation regulating this work-life balance, regulating things like, and we've talked about it, uh, email curfews, certainly paid sick leave uh, is another example of that. But, you know, one prong being government trying to regulate and trying to dictate this increased productivity. But then there is this second prong where companies are looking at voluntarily some initiatives as to how to increase uh, employee morale, how to increase employee productivity. So I think it's something worth monitoring again. It's always fascinating, I think, to see what other companies are doing to try to improve morale and improve productivity. And at least for this one company and this one study, a four-day, eight-hour work week is something that they have looked at. We've also been hearing a lot, and I've been speaking a lot about the um, how the Me Too movement has prompted legislation and prompted companies to change how they address sexual harassment complaints, including whether sexual harassment should or can be addressed through the more confidential and private arbitration system, as opposed to going through a more public court proceeding. Well, Google has just been in the news. I don't know if you've seen that, but Google has apparently taken a bigger leap uh, in this initiative by announcing that it will no longer use arbitration or class action waivers, not just for sexual harassment claims, but for all employee disputes. You may remember, uh, just going back a little bit, that in this past November 2018, approximately 18,000 Google employees staged a walkout to protest what they believed uh, were really unfair practices when it came to forced arbitration, when it came to confidentiality of settlements, uh, and how the employee generally dealt with issues such as sexual harassment complaints and gender pay equity. Well, that led to changes, you'll also remember, that very month in November when it came to sexual harassment and gender inequality issues and how Google as a company was going to look at those issues. Now, in the beginning of 2019, Google is announcing that we're going to take this bigger leap and say we're not going to have class action waivers and we're not going to have mandatory arbitration regardless of the kind of dispute um, that the company may be having with, with its employees. So what's the takeaway here? Um, other than saying, hmm, that's interesting, uh, I think you need to recognize that the workforce today is smarter and certainly uh, more active than it ever was. Um, and is really doing a good job, I think, employees are collectively doing a good job to actively effectuate change in corporate America. 
Um, but it's not just about saying, you know, yes or no to arbitration or yes or no to mandatory uh, class action waivers. There is no one-size-fits-all to companies. And you hear that as a common theme uh, in a lot of what I talk about on this podcast. You need to really consider what makes sense to your company and why you're doing what you're doing. Do arbitration agreements make sense? Do they make sense for certain classes of employees? Do class action waivers make sense given the nature of your industry, given the nature of your workforce, and frankly, given the nature of the kinds of disputes that your company tends to see? Now, that decision uh, on your company's part may be, um, I don't know, uh, forced, for lack of a better term, because uh, there are a lot of states coming out now, as long as we're talking about some trends, there are a lot of states coming out with legislation on the state levels banning mandatory arbitration altogether. And how topical is this podcast episode? Because just a bit of news out of Washington, D.C., just yesterday, Senate Democrat Richard Blumenthal and uh, House of Representatives Democrat Hank Johnson just yesterday jointly introduced a bill called the Forced Arbitration Injustice Repeal Act, in Congress that would bar bar mandatory arbitration agreements and a whole host of disputes, consumer disputes, antitrust disputes, but that would also include employment disputes. So they would ban mandatory arbitration agreements in employment disputes. It would also attempt to block class action waivers for whatever that's worth. Now, the Me Too hashtag we know has gained so much traction um, but I think so too will a new hashtag, and that is hashtag forced arbitration. So Congress just took some action yesterday. I don't know where it's going to go, given the makeup of Congress as a whole, given that we've got a Republican in the White House. Uh, who knows if we see a president, a Democratic president, uh, with the next administration, maybe this will gain some more traction, um, like things such as the Lilly Ledbetter uh, Fair Pay Act did uh, in the prior Democratic administration. Um, but it's worth keeping on your radar, and it's worth keeping note of what the federal government and what the states are doing when it comes to mandatory arbitration. Uh, and in the meantime, you as a company should be sitting back and thinking about strategically what makes the most sense for you. Speaking of the Me Too movement affecting change, we are also starting to see a significant change in how courts are looking at the issue of sexual discrimination and the expansiveness of how they are defining sex discrimination. Another case, if you are keeping track at home, it's called Parker versus Rima Consulting Services out of the Fourth Circuit Court of Appeals. It tells us that it's not just about the sort of textbook examples of um, discriminatory adverse action or hostile jokes and statements that are sexual in nature, but an unlawful act can also include sex stereotyping and even beyond that, certain office gossip. Because according to this court, sex stereotyping and office gossip can still have a damaging impact on the workplace. And that is the reason for these anti-discrimination statutes. In this case, you had a warehouse manager spread a seemingly false rumor that a female employee had been successful at the company because she had a sexual relationship with another high-ranking manager. 
The first court evaluating the case, the district court, dismissed the case entirely on the ground that the harassment engaged in by this uh, warehouse manager was not based on gender. So how can we call this gender discrimination or gender harassment? The harassment wasn't based on gender. It was based on allegations about specific conduct, sleeping with a boss, albeit perhaps false allegations. Again, on appeal, though, the Court of Appeals here, the Fourth Circuit Court of Appeals, took a different and a much more broad approach at this. Uh, and the Court of Appeals said that the lower court did not take into account the sexual-based nature of these rumors and the traditional negative stereotypes about women advancing in the workplace. And because of that, well, we're going to have and we're going to give this employee an opportunity to pursue the claims and see where the case goes whether it gets dismissed later on or whether it actually goes to a jury of their peers, who knows, but it shouldn't be dismissed altogether, so says the court, because sexual stereotyping and even office gossip could lead to discrimination findings. Finally, uh, we always talk about how new protected classes and characteristics are being included every day in anti-discrimination laws. The latest is coming from New York City. And how many times have I said it? New York City is really becoming California East. Um, and a new one has just been introduced, I guess, from New York City uh, as a protected characteristic, and that is hair. Yes, hair. The New York City Commission on Human Rights just issued a 10-page guidance memorandum to make clear that the city's anti-discrimination statute, quote, protects the rights of New Yorkers to maintain natural hair or hairstyles that are closely associated with their racial, ethnic, or cultural identities, end quote. So I guess it's not really fair to say that they've introduced hair as a new protected characteristic, but they are making clear that hair and policies and practices and decisions regarding an employee's hair or hairstyle could lead to a discrimination finding. So, for example, violations could include companies that have grooming policies that, let's say, either require employees to alter their hair to conform to certain appearance standards banning hair that extends a certain measurement from the employee's scalp. Now, certainly, we have in some industries, some companies, health and safety concerns that come into play, but there needs to be um, an analysis. There needs to be some discussion about alternatives to address the health or safety concerns as opposed to just saying right off the bat, well, you have to cut your hair or you have to do X or Y to your hair. And certainly policies that uh, promote certain specific hairstyles that are, or prohibit certain specific hairstyles that are commonly associated with African Americans, those, according to the New York City Commission on Human Rights, um, could be a problem as well. So here's the takeaway when it comes to that. Uh, again, other than the obvious, and that is, you know, just keep abreast as to what uh, all of these agencies uh, state, federal, and local are doing when they're expanding their anti-discrimination statutes to include new characteristics or to broaden their interpretation of existing characteristics. Other than that, um, again, it's really about taking stock at, of what your policies are and, and why you have certain policies. Before you consider 
whether uh, your workplace policy or your practice is legal or not. Consider the efficacy of your policy or your practice in the first place. Don't just have something in writing because you saw it on the internet or because other companies have the policy. Ask yourself, why do you have this certain policy? Why do you have this particular practice? Is it based on outdated assumptions that have carried over from one employee manual to another, one senior executive team to another? Are you actually protecting or achieving a legitimate business interest? And are you accounting for the realities of 2019? I think these are questions that you need to ask. Take a look at your employee manual. It's not just about waiting for the end of the year in December to you know, take a, a new look at your employee manual, but these are fluid or should be fluid documents. Your practices should be fluid practices that are always looked at by your HR and your in-house counsel team. Why do we have these policies? If your answer is either I don't know or it's because we've always had them or it's because the last manual had it, or it's because the company down the street or company X in your industry had it, I would submit to you that those are not good reasons for continuing a particular policy or practice, any policy or practice, but particularly those that could be viewed as infringing on the rights or the lifestyles or the work-life balance of your employees. Remember, at the end of the day, and as the study I just referred to looked at, there's that cliche, a happy employee is a productive employee. So hair as a new protected characteristic, certainly at least in New York City. So I want to give you a final PS, um, not necessarily something that makes you go, hmm, but it's, it's, maybe it is, maybe it's made you go, hmm, for a few years now, and that is an update on the overtime rule. Um, I have said that uh, 2019 is going to be when we see uh, the new overtime rule from the uh, Federal Department of Labor. Uh, for those of you who follow me on Twitter, uh, and if you don't, why not? Uh, I, if you, you don't get to hear my voice, certainly, and, and maybe that's a good thing, but you do get all kinds of comments and uh, retweets and stuff from me on Twitter. So if you do want to follow me on Twitter, and if you don't already, um, I've got a very easy handle. It's at mschmidtemplaw. That's at mschmidt, M-S-C-H-M-I-D-T, emp, E-M-P, law, L-A-W, at mschmidtemplaw, for employment law, obviously. Feel free to follow me. Um, but on my Twitter, uh, I have said that I put the over-under as to when we're going to see this new overtime rule, probably about March 15th. And so we are now two weeks away from that. Uh, it was a couple of months ago uh, submitted to uh, the OMB. Uh, for review and analysis, but the Department of Labor appears to be ready to issue this new overtime rule. Sources at the Department of Labor, unnamed sources, uh, well, it sounds so mysterious, uh, have been suggesting that the salary threshold is now going to be put up to $35,000 uh, to decide whether somebody is exempt or not, at least from the salary standpoint of the test. Um, that's really where we've been putting it. We've been talking about how it's certainly going to be between the old, you know, a number in the 20,000s to uh, on the other extreme where the Obama administration put it at about 47,000. It was going to be somewhere in between, and it looks like they are fixed at $35,000. Uh, we will see when it's actually released. But there are other questions that we're still anxiously awaiting. Um, are they doing anything with the job duties tests? 
Uh, are they going to do anything when it comes to periodically updating, having further updates to the salary threshold? I think either way, whatever comes out, uh, it's probably going to be a little while until they become uh, effective or the new rule becomes effective. Uh, there'll certainly be a notice and comment period, but I think there will likely be lawsuits from either side of the um, equation here, whether it's plaintiff's groups, whether it's business groups. They are certainly trying to get a rule, I think, uh, in the books before the 2020 elections, but we'll see what happens. Uh, I suspect that we'll have some more news by the time I have my next podcast episode, and if you keep it right here, uh, I will let you know what that breaking news is when it happens. But that is all the time that we have today. Uh, There are a lot of things going on in the world of employment law, Um, and I thank you for listening. I hope that I've uh, helped you uh, navigate uh, some of these interesting things a little bit, but continue to listen, and I will continue to try my best to educate and perhaps entertain uh, as you are all sitting there in your offices at your companies, scratching your head and saying, hmm... So until the next time, this is Employment Law Now, and I hope all of your labor is productive.